Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. We'll um, finish up Thessalonians tonight. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And for those who are in Timothy, we'll finish. We'll do Titus tonight. Father, thanks so much for this time of study and for this opportunity to open your word, to look at the pages, to be taught. We just thank you for this day in his name. Amen. Amen. Um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul wraps up his letter to Thessalonians. Actually, we need to start in verse 13 of chapter 2 because we left off in verse 12 last time, so we better pick up there. Um, Verse 13, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by God, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And, and like I've often said, this whole idea of election and all of that is like this tree that has a root all the way through Scripture. So no matter where you dig in Scripture, you're going to hit this notion. And I guess, you know, as, as I read that, as I just read verse 13, I have to ask the people who have difficulty with this notion of sovereignty and election what the verse means. We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Why? Because God from the beginning chose you for salvation. What, what beginning is he talking about? From the beginning. Beginning of time. Usually when he uses that phrase, from the beginning or before time began or whatever, it's referring to pre-creation. Um, Pre-anything. He chose you for salvation. And that's God's, God's part, but how, how is that salvation by God in eternity past seen in time? Well, it's through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Um, where you have election in eternity past, you have belief in time. And I like the way one man put it. He says, you know, we can sit down, we can argue back and forth about election and predestination, but both sides agree on one thing. Who goes to heaven? The ones who believe. believe. Now you can say, well, you believe because God gave you the faith, which I believe the Bible teaches, or you can believe because you believe whatever. The bottom line is you believe. Who goes to heaven? Those who believe. He said to these people, you guys believed. And this is the same notion that you have, remember back in 1 Thessalonians, when he talks to them. He says, I know you're elect by God. Why? Because of what you do. All right, knowing beloved your beloved brethren, your election by God, First Thessalonians one four. And how did he know that? Well, we give thanks to God for you all, make a mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope. So all three of those things produce the external evidence of one's election by God, to which He called you by our gospel, our good news. Um, the idea of gospel, there are gospel, you know, you don't want to say, well, that's Paul's message, the one he dreamed up. He, all he's saying is, by the good news which we preached. Um, that's really what gospel is, good news. And when he came and, and preached that, 
they believed, to which he called you. And the idea of calling there is, um, is effectual. There's two calls in the Bible. There's an effectual call and there's a general call. General call is whosoever will may come. The effectual call is who comes? The elect. They're the ones that really do come. And this is an effectual call in the sense that it produces salvation. You want to think about an effectual call, think of Paul on the road to Damascus. You know, God shows up, Paul, you're, you're in my army now. And Paul says, yes, Lord. He didn't have a choice. It wasn't, you know, I'm going to think about this, Lord. I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you. I mean, it was an immediate response of faith and belief. The effectual call for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In those two verses, you have an entire encapsulation of salvation, of what it is. Um, in eternity past, what do you have? You have a choice. A choice by God. This is eternity past. God chose you. It says here. Beginning, He chose you for salvation. In time, what do you have? Well, you have sanctification by the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? What does sanctification really mean in this context, do you think? When we talk about sanctification, what are we usually talking about? Improvement. Holiness. You know, the, the progressive aspect of salvation, where we're progressively made holy as we obe are obedient. But this, is this talking about by the sanctification and purification that all of our sins were? I think that's what the idea here is. Sanctification by the Spirit is the setting apart. How is it? Who is the agent whereby you are sanctified? Saved. Holy Spirit. This is talking about salvation, I think, in this context. It's not talking about the progressive aspect of salvation. It's talking about the initial setting apart to God, which is the very act of salvation itself. You are sanctified, set apart to God by the Spirit when, when the Spirit regenerates you and gives you faith to believe. And it says here, and belief in the truth. Now that's interesting. Um, how is it that you, you can believe the truth? What, what, makes it, what makes it possible for a person, a pagan, who's dead in sin, to believe the truth? The Holy Spirit gives you that. And you see both of these things connected together. You don't see a disconnect. One, one thing to understand, I think, here is you do not see a disconnect between these two components. It's not possible to be sanctified by the Spirit and not believe the Gospel. It's not possible to really believe the Gospel in the true sense of the word without there being a prior sanctification by the Spirit. Both pieces go together. You can't split them apart. So where you see true salvation, you also see repentance and faith. All of that, all of that, all of those components are there. Because there's some that want to say, well, you can just believe in Jesus as Lord or as Savior and forget the holiness business, forget, you know, obedience, forget all of that. Just take him as Lord and he'll, he'll work on you later on to bring you to obedience. I, I don't think it, the Bible teaches that notion. Now, you may not understand what it means at the point of salvation, but you're not going to enter the salvation, your salvation with a knowing, um, determined split between Christ's Lordship and Saviorship. Okay? 
And then it says here, to which he called you by our gospel. So, there's, you have here the effectual calling, which is to be called out. And how, how are these things produced in the life of the person? What, what produces that? The Holy Spirit produces it, but what, what, what is the content of the faith to which the Holy Spirit enables you to believe? It's the gospel, right? It's the gospel, alright? It's the gospel that you believe. So in time, in eternity past, what do you have? God's choice. In time, what happens? You hear the message of the gospel, at which time, if, if, if you are elect of God and it's your effectual calling, you have the sanctification of the Spirit, you believe the truth, you are, you are saved, you are born again at that point in time, and then what's the final component for the obtaining of glory? So in eternity future, what do you get? Glory. Glory. Okay. You get, so, you, so in essence, what you see in these two verses is this whole issue here. The same issue, by the way, that you see in Romans chapter 8. Those he foreknew, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. I missed one in there, but the point is you've got an unbroken chain stretching from eternity past to eternity future that no one gets lost in the cracks. No one drops out. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. What does he mean, therefore, stand fast and hold the teachings? What does he mean by that? Why should they stick to it? Why should, they, why should they stick with the truth that they've been taught? What's the basis for that? What's the therefore, therefore? What's it pointing back to? It's pointing back to this. Because you've been called to glory, because you've been redeemed and born again, because God has chosen you, on the basis of your position in Christ, be obedient. Obey the teachings, the traditions. Now this is not tradition in the bad sense. This is the teaching that Paul gave them. The instruction, therefore be obedient to the instruction that you were given. Whether by word or by our letter. Well, that's referring back to the first epistle or this epistle. Now may our God May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word, word and work. Um, the amazing thing I see in, Roman, in, in verses 6 and 7, 16, 17 there is um, the source of everything, absolutely everything is God everything. It's not because of what I do. It's all Him. 
He's loved us and given us an everlasting consolation. What's that? Salvation and good hope by grace. What's that? The hope of future glory. It's all by grace. And because of that, we can have our hearts comforted and established in every good word and work. Because we don't have to worry about whether we'll make it or not. He's done it all. He's done it all. I was listening to somebody who was speaking. I think there's a lot of truth to what he was saying. He's saying, um, he's saying if you have a, a Baptist and a Catholic and another man go to heaven, he said, consider him going to heaven, and God's saying, okay, he asked the Catholic, uh, why should I let you into heaven? What would the Catholic say? I did good works. Because of what I did. Here's the list of what I did. What would the Baptist say? Because I believe. And what's really the correct answer? Yeah, I, I can't think of any good reason why he'd let me in, to be honest. To be honest, I don't know. I can't think of any good reason why you should let me into heaven. Do we believe? Absolutely we believe. But why do we believe? Because he chose us. See, what we have done, I think, and I, I, th I think it's unintentional, but but I think we do it nevertheless. Somebody open the door. I think we do that nevertheless is that we we substitute for Catholic words. We substitute <laughs> Thank you. For, for what the Catholics do by, by substituting works we say well I believe. Isn't it great I believe? God I believed. And we, we, we're so happy that, that we did this thing. And we need to get, go one step further back. Yeah, I believe, but you called. And I think you see that, that here in these verses. Chapter 3, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. What did Paul pray for? What, what, when, you know, you, if Paul showed up in your church prayer meeting, and, and you say, Paul, you know, what would you want us to pray about? What would he ask you to pray about? The message of the Lord may be spread rapidly. Yeah. Evangelism. We pray, you know, well, you know, my big toe's been hurting me a little bit. I'd like you to pray that God would heal me. Um, pray for you think about, and this is something that we're struggling with right now in our own congregation. Uh, as far as the local ministry is concerned, we still haven't gotten our game plan together too well. But due to some trips that we took, especially to Romania, the outside ministry is going out great. We support missionaries, this and that. And now there's this, this thought that goes on and says, well, you know, let's cut back on the outside missions and concentrate on the inside missions, you know? Mm -hmm. And my concern is that the inside mission just means, you know, another van or another something else or a new balcony or a new building, so on and so forth. Well, I'm not going to give the answer to that, but I'll tell you where to find it. Go over to the churches in Revelation and read them and find out which two weren't um, on God's blacklist. Oh, weren't weren't. Which two churches didn't have anything bad said about them? 
Remember, anybody remember those? One's Philadelphia, definitely. Sardis. Yeah. That was the, Laodicea was the apostate. What was the characteristic of the Sardis church? Remember? They were persecuted. They were dying for their faith. They were laying down their lives. It was not a good thing to be a Christian in Sardis. What were the Philadelphians concerned with? Evangelism. Evangelism. Before, hold, I've set before you an open door that no man can shut. Two things will keep your church pure and keep you going. One is persecution. The second is evangelism. All right. Because we don't have any persecution here. So. so, so it's a moot point. What do you do? Do you, you know, think about it. Um, keep that outward focus. God will take care of the inward stuff. You keep. I. I yeah, I, I would. I'd be careful not to cut back on your outward focus, because because you look at the evangelist. Here's the thing: if a church is evangelistic, trying to reach their loss, they don't have time to fight yeah. over the color of the bathroom walls and the color of the carpet and who got the biggest hunk of ham at the meeting last night. They don't have time for that kind of stuff. They're too busy. How can we reach the lost? How can we minister to our com community? How can we get the gospel out? That'll keep your church vibrant and healthy, I think. But you can read those, those churches yourself. And it's interesting that the two that didn't have any problems, both of them were fighting for, well, they were fighting for their lives. The, the Sardis church was fighting for its very life. You know, and who's going to be a Christian in that kind of church when it costs you everything? But, and then Philadelphia, they were outwardly focused, you know. But what you see here is what Paul wanted people to pray for. Pray that the gospel might go forth swiftly. Not that I would be okay, not that I would have health or prosper, or that I would get the appropriate amount of funds for the ministry this month or whatever. Pray that the gospel would go forth. And pray that I would be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have the same, have faith. That I would be delivered from men who wanted to hurt me to prevent me from doing the ministry of the gospel. It wasn't that they, I want you to pray that men won't hurt me because it hurts to be hurt. But I don't want to hinder the gospel. I want to have a free ability to share and to minister that gospel. And that's where his focus was. It wasn't on his circumstances or, or anything like that. It was the outward focus of, of ministry. But the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Who's the evil one? Satan. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. I have confidence that not only will you obey what I'm saying, but you'll continue to do that. And God will keep you from the evil one. God protects the church from the evil one. And he protects us from the evil one. And I think that that's a necessary, necessary thing to pray. You know, when you pray for it, it's sort of like uh, if you go back to the Lord's Prayer, actually the disciples' prayer, um, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Hope Neron, there's the evil one. Deliver us from Satan. Don't let us fall victim to him. Pray for that. Christ prayed for Peter that he would not be mauled to death by the devil. Yeah. Um, pray for that. And he said, the Lord is faithful who will guard you from the evil one. Now may the Lord God direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience 
of Christ. Benediction. But here's where we want to spend most of our time here in verses 6 through 15. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to tradition which he received from us. Um, there's a big argument in the church today about, with, you know, about who you fellowship with. You guys ever worry about, you ever hear second degree separation and all that stuff? You ever fight that battle? Good. You don't. Huh? Okay. Well, then you haven't had to worry about it, but I'll, I'll tell you what it is. Um, th there are certain Baptistic groups and other groups, but mainly the Baptistic groups, that um, basically say that you need to withdraw yourself from any form of false teaching, heresy, or whatever. And not only do you need to withdraw yourself from that, but you need to withdraw yourself from people who are friends with people who are in that. Okay? So for example, there is a contingent that would say that Moody Bible Institute is a very bad institution because we don't have all 900 points of doctrine like they do. And since we don't believe all the same doctrine that they believe, we're bad people and we need, they need to withdraw themselves from us because if they're around us, they might get tainted by us. And uh, for example, some would not support Campus Crusade because to them they've compromised, but not only would they support Campus Crusade, they wouldn't want to hang around with anybody who hangs around with a Campus Crusade person. That's called double separation. Triple is I don't hang around with anybody who hangs around with someone who hangs around with a Campus Crusade person. And it goes, you know, it's all, and the whole idea behind it is you got to withdraw yourself from the sinning brother. You got to withdraw yourself from heresy and false teaching. Well, and, and what they do is they throw out a bunch of verses, this being one of them, they throw out. Um, trying, to, trying to support this notion of, of withdrawing from people who don't agree with you. Well, there's a problem with that. Um, it says here, who are we to withdraw ourselves from? Who do we withdraw our fellowship from? Well, from everybody who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. What is Paul talking about? He's walking in sin. I think he's consistent, consistent, repeated, repeated, habitual sin. Now, are we to withdraw from a Christian brother who is sinning? No. No. Yeah, we are. If he's under discipline, we are, aren't we? Well, yeah, but if he's not sinning once. No, not not sinning once. Talk about a person who you know says, "Hey, I'm a Christian. I love the Lord, but." Uh, I'm an habitual fornicator. <laughs> All right. Then you stay away. You stay away from them. Why? Because you mean. Yeah. Now, do you withdraw yourself from the pagan who's a fornicator? No. Why? That's a good question. Because you're trying to reach out to him. Yeah, that's probably the best reason in the world. Uh, the, the point is. You know, I've listed all these things on separation, all right? And, and I get sick of listening to some of these yo-yos talk about this thing. The point, the point is, let's look at the ministry of Jesus Christ. Okay? Who did he withdraw himself from? The Pharisees. Why? Because they were double standard. They claimed to know God. They claimed to know God and love God, and they lived like this. 
They were hypocrites. They were hypocrites. Who did he hang around with? The tax collectors, the publicans. And remember the Pharisees came up and said, you know, why is your master eating with all these bad people? And Christ said, well, the sick are the ones that need help. You guys are well. You don't need anybody to give you a hand. The sick people need a hand. When I look at the Bible, the Bible tells me that I'm to withdraw myself from certain people. One of them being the evil man. In other words, it's not good to hang around with murderers, you know. It's not good to hang around with people who are habitually living lives of sin and in sin. Um, you don't treat the pagan who is sinning like you treat the Christian, but it doesn't mean you hang around with them necessarily. They are your mission field. You don't withdraw yourself and cut off all ties with them, but on the other hand, you don't run with them and go and do the same things they do. All right. A Christian, however, who claims to love the Lord and, and who claims to be a believer who is living in sin, you're to withdraw from to withdraw fellowship. Here to withdraw fellowship. All right. I mean, Matthew 18. What does Matthew 18 say? Matthew 18. If a brother sins, go tell him his fault. If he listens, you're great. If he it doesn't listen, get somebody else. If they don't listen, go tell someone else. Um, it's mine. Yeah. And, and if they don't listen, what do you do? You treat them as a tax collector, a publican. And in context, it means you withdraw off fellowship from them. And, and I think, and there's one passage, I can't remember off the top of my head where it is, where Paul says, um, I told you to stay away from the sinning brother, not from the world, but from the sinning brother. I think it's Corinthians, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, he, he says you, you, there are certain people you don't... I'm getting all kinds of pages now. Um, all right. Now the database is down. I gotta turn this thing off. Um, yeah, turn the pager off. I'm getting all these pages. The the, the point that's that's read being okay. Why don't you read that to us? No, okay. So what he does, he, he reads it in Romanian. That's the problem. You know? <laughs> I asked him to read the passage. He's got his Romanian Bible there. You know, so we we could be in trouble there. What's it say? I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. But not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but a sexually immoral, or greedy, an idolater, or a chandler, a drunkard, or a swindler. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. See, that answers your question right there. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 following. Who, yeah, 9 following. Who do you withdraw yourself from? You withdraw yourself from a Christian brother who claims to be a Christian, claims to love the Lord, and is living in habitual, blatant, unrepentant sin. Give me that one more time. 1 Corinthians 5, 9. 
First Corinthians 5 9. This, this is for all the people that tell you that you have to love everybody. Yeah. And that you have to accept everybody because, you know, they're just weak. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would have to need to go out of the world. I didn't tell you that. But I have now I've written you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Someone who claims to be a Christian is not living like it, you're to withdraw from. All right. Um, there's, there's, and that's what Paul is saying here. An idea that according to tradition, which we received from us, is the teaching, the, 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 the core of the faith that Paul delivered to them. Stay away from them. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Paul says, you know the way I, I lived among you. You know what I did. You know how I conducted myself. The word for disorderly is a tactos. A tactos. And uh, what it means, um, they dug papyri up to find out what this word means. It's a fascinating word. And it was used in a couple of different uh, situations. One, it referred to a soldier who's marching out of step. You've got the whole regiment, you know, marching along, and here's one guy who's out of line, out of step, doing his own thing. He's a tactos disorderly. Another usage was uh, a, a, an apprentice who was uh, given to someone to learn a trade and instead of going to school that day he's down playing hooky fishing down at the fishing hole or whatever. He's disorderly. This is a person who's not walking right, not doing what is right. An undisciplined person not doing that which he should be doing. And what should he be doing in context? Obeying the teaching. If he is a tactos, withdraw yourself from him. Okay? And this is, and understanding here, it's not him screwing up once or even twice and repenting. It's someone who is screwing up consistently and not repenting. It's someone who refuses to listen. So let, let's, let's put this into context. How should you deal with someone who, we'll put a real one, how do you deal with someone in your church, you had the situation, who is embezzling money? How do you deal with it? You take them out of the position of whatever they're doing, you put them under discipline until they are truly repentant and have exhibited repentance. Okay. Do you ever restore him back or you don't? I think you restore him back. In that position of saying? Possibly. If they repent. Possibly. Like years later. Possibly. Um, th th there are basically two camps on this. And, and let me tell you where I, I land on this. One camp says, look, you know, if a guy comes and says, look, you know, I, I embezzled a million dollars, I'm sorry. I won't do it again. You leave them where they're at. Now, wait, now come on, think about that. But not too long. All right, that's not right. It depends. Depends a lot on the certain circumstances. Depends on the circumstances. It depends on the person. But I will tell you this: whoever is removed because of something like that needs to reprove themselves right. over a period. Over a period of time. Not right away. 
No. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no. Over a period of time. And there needs to be possibly restoration or restitution. Um, yeah. Uh, and I'll tell you what, Paul's very serious about this thing. It's in the area of finances and money. If you read um, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, 10, 11, what he's doing, he's, he's going to get a collection, take it back to Jerusalem. And he's talking about this, this committee that's going with him. He's got two or three brothers, two or three Christians going to take the collection so that no one person has the money, that there's right. mutual accountability and everybody knows what's going on. It's all open and above board and not hidden. Uh, he, goes above, he goes beyond you know, what we would normally do. He goes beyond that to ensure that there could be no question of impropriety. If I was in a church where my treasurer or whatever was charged with embezzling or something, they would not continue in that position, period. Until there was true repentance and true brokenness and true restoration and repentance. Would you bring that out openly or you would, you would deal with it in the street like you break before the body, or you just depends how the sin works. Just like it says in Timothy, if he sins, um, you know the body, yeah, you have to. I'll tell you where I land I on. Yeah. So I'll tell you where where I stand, where I would stay on that. I don't believe in the secret stuff, right? Because what happens is people say, "Well, why did you remove Joe Blow? You're a bad guy because he was a nice guy. I like Joe, and he's not in ministry, and it must be your fault because he's a nice guy. <clears throat> and if you're not allowed to tell him why." Yeah. You're the bad guy. Okay. So would you bring it before the board, or would you bring it up? I bring it before the board. I wouldn't. I don't. Yeah, I don't think you necessarily have to take out a full-page ad in a newspaper yeah, why it happened. But I don't believe. Or maybe like we have uh, what we call the extended board. Every head of household who's in good standing with the church is a member of this. Yeah. So you know when we have something that's of a serious matter, but it's it's more serious than just the, the small board, which is yeah. the deacons. We bring it in front of those people, and usually you have about fifty guys there, you know. And I, I would say that, that that would be something for them. You know, we say, hey, this is the situation. In a church, you know, there's like different individuals, and everybody, you know, even though they say they're Christians, everybody on some has to no. have a mind. Yeah. And everybody be a part. Yeah. I, the point here is people, the, the point what Paul's trying to make is there's a difference between the pagan and the Christian. Yeah. Pagans sin because that's their nature to sin. The Christian shouldn't be doing that. And where that Christian is doing that in a consistent, unrepentant manner, there needs to be discipline and accountability. And he says, I want you to withdraw yourself from anyone who is walking disorderly. Because you know how we lived among you. You know what manner of person I was. You know my conduct. You know that I didn't take advantage of you people. You know I didn't demand things from you. And if you, you know, go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 where he's telling them, you remember when I showed up I didn't take anybody's money. I didn't ask you to support me. I wasn't in it for my favors or anything like that. In fact, I was persecuted because I preached the gospel. I got run out of town, remember? So I'm not in it for what I get out of it. And that's what he's saying here. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge. You know that. I didn't show up and, and mooch. But we worked with labor and toil night and day. 
that we might not be a burden to any of you. Night, labor and toil. Those are very, those are um, intensified words, meaning laboring to the point of exhaustion, of collapse. I mean, of totally pooped out. He said, I work night and day in order to not take anything from you. To not be a burden to any of you. You know that. You remember when I showed up, what I did. I, I haven't taken a dime from you people. Um, it's interesting to me how the church can often become a repository of moochers. Alright. Um, and the Bible says we're certainly to help those brothers and sisters who have need. But what about those who have need and won't do anything about that need? And just expect you to foot the bill. Well, Paul talks about them here. Later on. Verse 10, if any man will not work, he shouldn't eat. Verse 9, he says, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. Here's the, here's the thing that Paul did. Paul says, you know, I had really the right to take support from you. I, I had that privilege. But for the good of the body, and so I could really be a te uh, 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 an example to you, I, I set aside my personal right for the greater good. Even though I had the right to be supported, I didn't, I didn't act that, on that right. But rather, I worked so that I would not have to take money from you. And I would be able to minister to you without you thinking I was in it for what I got out of it. Now why did he say this? Why, why was he telling them here at the end? Well, because what had happened, as we read in verse 10 and 11, some people had got this day of the Lord thing and the second coming thing. They, they had gotten to the point where they were so caught up with this that they had quit their jobs, they had, quit, they had sold everything, and they were waiting for God to show up. And when God wasn't showing up and they got hungry, where did they have to go? The church. To the church. For even when we're with you, we command you to do this, if any man will not work, neither should he eat. For we hear there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busy buddies, not doing anything. Not working at all. They were expecting the Christian church to support their needs and, and, to, and, to, and to feed them and to clothe them and to give them shelter. Why, why should I have to work tomorrow? Because God's coming back. I'll wait for Him. What I see here is that God, God places a great deal of responsibility on the individual. On the individual. Now that one's not mine because I turned mine off. This is right. the pager night or what? This is pager night. God places a tremendous amount of responsibility on the believer. To do what? To do everything you can to provide for your needs so that you will not be a burden on anybody. It's an attitude issue. Now, I should be able to come to the church for a need but I should also have, should have done everything in my power prior to that to meet that need. Alright? I should have taken all the steps I can take. 
and then go to the church for aid. I shouldn't just go to the church because I'm lazy and I'm a bum and I don't want to do the job. Um, this, this is really, really, uh, I'll be honest with you, I, I, I really struggle with this with some, some acquaintances I've had in my life. One man in particular who, uh, I don't know, you can tell him a lot but not much because he doesn't catch on to what you're trying to say. He's gone from job to job to job and uh, he wants to work on his own. He wants to be his own boss but he lacks the discipline to support himself and his family and uh, he lacks the discipline to really run his own business but he doesn't want to work for anyone because he doesn't like being told what to do. So instead of going and getting a job like most of all of us do he goes from odd job to odd job trying to create his own business to make his own living and even there there are difficulties because he doesn't fulfill his contracts, he doesn't do a good job, he does a good job, it just takes him forever and a day to get things done. He just, he's not a diligent person. And yet it's his firm belief that the church should aid him in meeting his needs that he can't meet as himself. The church should come alongside and give him money and give him assistance and help him. Um, and he's done that consistently. And he's gone through, at least here at this particular location, he has gone through many families and taken advantage of them. You know, you, you listen to this guy and you feel sorry for him, you try to help him out, and it's a black hole. I mean, no matter what you put in there, it's sucked into oblivion. Um, and he drains the very life juices out of you because you're supposed to help him. We had a guy like that come to our church. He wasn't a member of our church. He just started coming to our church and started, started mm -hmm. to move people in the major league. And from left to right, and take me here, take me there, and you know, I need money, and I need this. And uh, told, you know, the poor just told the guy to take a hike. Uh-huh. You know, we're not here to support moochers, as they said. That's right. We're to support our own people who need help, who legitimately need help. But there are a lot of people who think they need help and they really don't. This, 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 you know, he, I, I know there are several people that uh, he couldn't pay his rent, so he got booted out from one place to another. Um, people let him rent off of them for free or for little money. He'd tear up the place, not take care of it. Um, I remember in particular, right at the end here, there's a particular situation where the people met with him and said, you know, we really feel sorry having to ask you to leave. And he said, well, maybe God's telling you that you should allow me to stay here for free. I mean, that's, I mean, this, the mentality is like, you just, yeah, you, you're, it's the kind of mentality where you sit there, you, you don't, you can't believe anybody's that dense and stupid to even say something like that. All right. Um, yeah, and, and when you try to to tell him what's to, what, you know what should be done and how he should, you know, he says, "Well, that's your opinion. You have no right to tell me how to live my life." Well, I just look at verse ten. If you don't work, you don't eat. 
He's saying, but I am working. Well, let, me, let me ask a question here. What does it mean? What do you think it means when Paul says, if you don't work, you don't eat? Context. Context is everything. What does he mean by saying, if you don't work, you don't eat? How would you use this passage to respond to a man or a woman who said, look, I am working at McDonald's flipping hamburgers and I can't make enough to live on. Now here's here this is where I would say if that's all they could do yeah. give them a hand. If that's all they could do give them a hand. But what if they could do more? That's the thing you can help you. Well, I think you can. You know, you have that opportunity. More. Unless you're I mean I said unless you're a little retarded there's you can always do more. I mean if you're, if you're mentally challenged and okay you need some help and it's Flipping burger is probably a great thing that you're doing, but if you're just a human being that is, you know, physically okay and mentally we, okay, you could always do better than that. We have a guy in our church right now, okay, who's married and he has a young daughter. All right, daughter like two or three. Guy's perfectly okay. He's 31. He has computer training. He graduated with a Bible degree. Do you understand what I'm we, saying? Uh -huh. uh, I don't know one of those southern, you know. And the guy's a mooch. He cannot work. He cannot hold a job. And then he goes throughout the whole church and he, he, he leads off of this person and that person. And one time he, he stands up in front of the church and he's giving people lectures on tithing and stuff. How, you know, I'm really sick of tired of this church not tithing enough. Because you don't have enough money to give me. <laughs> they, yeah. were about, they were about to feather him. Yeah. They were, when they heard him say that kind of stuff. I mean, 32, perfectly healthy person, nothing wrong with him, has a daughter, just been married, what, two, three years, and it's a work. Doesn't the Bible it? says if you don't work, you don't eat. I understand that in context to just trot back up two verses. And what did Paul say? I labored night and day to not take anything from you. So the, it doesn't mean right. that literally. Yeah. Yeah. It's, Right there says it. I mean, what, how, how does Paul have to... I mean, the, the problem is we over-exegete things. How can you over-exegete this? Well, it really doesn't mean if you don't work, you don't eat. Yeah, what else does it mean? All right? And, and the idea here, they're busy bodies. What's that mean? Well, if you're not working, what do you do? You waste time and you're in the way. All right? He said, I hear there are some of you that are busybodies. This person I know of is a busybody. He needs to get a job. Yep. He, needs to, he said, I don't like working for people. Well, too bad. <laughs> Tough. To That's work. why you get paid. That's why you get a paycheck. Yep. My boss is a jerk. Well, I think one of the boss's employees is a jerk. Yep. You, know, you do. Why do you, why do, you do it the boss's way? Because he's the one that pays you. You do it his way. All right, fine. Okay. Um, the point is, as believers, we're called to provide for ourselves, and we're to we're to do that in such a way that the last resort is to go to the church for help. That's the last resort, and even then, I don't see it on a continuing basis. You know, where I'm, like you said, unless you're mentally handicapped or something. And, and you can't do better, you're a widow. or you're a widow, or, or there's some other, and, and you could tell those, yeah. those circumstances, or you're physically disabled or handicapped because of something that happened, 
Those are the people we're to reach out and help and take care of. The men who are and women who are healthy without you know, no, no physical problems, handicaps, who just want to dilly-dally around in a job because they like it and want you to pick up the, the lack and the, the, what they don't make. The, the word is, if you don't work, you don't eat. You don't eat. For we hear there are some who are busy bodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Ooh, what's it say there? Well, the opposite of a busybody is someone who works in quietness. What does that mean? You mind your own business. You do your job. You do the best you can. You eat your own bread. Alright. Now, one of the problems I think that we have in, the, in this whole area you know, let's go back to the whole idea of finances and money and, and, and this, things like that. And as I, I think Christians need to understand that they have to live within their means. Alright. My statement to my friend was at one point, and I wrote him a letter and told him this. I said, if you want to live, if you, if you want your vocation to be that of a carpenter working in wood and, and doing that stuff, then you need to live the lifestyle that that's going to afford you to live. And it's not for you to, for you to come to me and say, well, Alan, you know, you make uh, $50,000 a year, more a year than I do. You should give me some of that money. No, you live the life that you chose to live. All right? You, if you want to do that, you know, my, my answer, well, if somebody says, well, I just like flipping hamburgers, fine. Then live the lifestyle that that gives you. Which means that you don't buy Cadillacs, you don't buy new houses, new cars, you don't live high on the hog. You, you live according to the, to the means that God's given you. But we have in the United States is, and I was listening to this on the way, way over here today, that the average American lives at 120% of their income. In other words, for every dollar they earn, they spend a dollar twenty. Okay? And church people do this. And that's why they have massive credit card debt and everything else. And that's why when you try to take a collection to do a ministry, everybody's up to their eyeballs in hock, and they, can't, they don't have any money left over to give the Lord. We need to teach people they need to live within their means. Some can live very well. Some have a lot. Others have very little, but live within your means. And then when there's needs arise and you're doing the best you can, what is the church to do? We are to help those who have need. We're to help them. It's interesting to me, you want to see Paul's mind on this, and we're all, remember when we went through 1 Timothy chapter 5, the widows in the church? You don't just put a widow on the rolls, it's because she comes in and says, hi, I'm hungry, I'm a widow, okay, we'll sign you up. What'd she have to do? Exhibit hospitality? She had to wash the saints' feet, which is the idea of exhibiting hospitality. Be 60 years old or greater. You didn't just take anybody that came in and said, hi, I, I have a need. Here, here's some money. What do you do? See, see, here's the problem. When you give people this and you don't make them work, what are you doing to their self-worth and dignity? You're destroying it. Yeah. Yeah, you're destroying it. Same, same problem with welfare. Yeah, and, and in fact, I would say this. 
I, I'll be honest with you, I would say this. If you have somebody in your church that has a need, a legitimate need, they're able-bodied, but they have a need, and they, they need the church to help, suggest, okay, fine, the church will help you, but we'd like you to show up every Saturday morning and sweep the floors. Something, just something, you know. It's not that we're going to pay you a salary, but, you know, when we need you to come around the church, and, you know, and see the godly person who is in that position who needs your help, what are they going to say? Absolutely. I'd be more than happy. Is there, if there's anything else I can do, you let me know. I'll be there. I appreciate your help. I want, I want to do my part. And they would come. The, the, the guy who's a, who's a mooch and a lazy butt, well, it's Saturday morning. I'm busy Saturday morning. You know? They're not going to do that. And after a while, you can pretty quickly separate the truly needy and the true ones who, who need that with the ones who just want a free ride. I, I personally, just personally, I have a hard time people giving me anything. I like to give, but I don't like people giving me stuff. You know, it's just, because I always feel I want to do something for them. I don't want to be a moocher. I don't want you to shower me with stuff. I, I want to be the one giving, the one doing. Um, but there are some that just love the attention. They love people, to, and they like standing up and talking about how bad they have and how life is so tough. My father-in-law tells me the story of a man they had in their church who always stood up and talked about how tough it was, how, you know, the kids were always sick, you know, and his daughter, you know, well, she cut her foot the other day and had to go get stitches and yada, 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 yada. And this is, my father-in-law just initially joined this church. And uh, he went to the deacon and said, man, you know, we ought to go help this brother out there. And they, they said, you know, if you really want to help him, just give him a, a sack of beans. And he couldn't figure it out. I said, man, these guys are cold-hearted, callous. What's wrong with them? He paid this guy a visit. The house was a disaster area. The yard was a wreck full of broken glass. <clears throat> You know, junk out in the yard. Well, duh. I mean, if you have that and you go out in the yard barefoot, what happens? You cut glass. Okay. The house was a, a disaster. It tore up from one end to the other. Give me. No. Here's a sack of beans. Go plant them. All right. The God, God dignifies work, He dignifies it. Huh? Even in the uh, Garden of Eden, you know, it was the ultimate utopia. God still gave man labor. He gave him a position. Gave him a right. Even to Adam, before yeah. the curse, he said, you're not to sit here and do nothing. You're here to work. You're here to work. You're here to do, tend the garden. And even one of the most relevant glory, we all have jobs, positions. Yeah. Ministering and things like that. See, what happens is Christianity, a lot of times, we say, look, you know, the pastor, now that's what you should be doing. Me working at a factory... That's not a that's not ministry. Wait. God's ordained that we work. So whatever vocation we do, we do our best as unto the Lord. To honor him, to make him look good, to adorn in Titus, we're going to look at this in a few minutes, to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. How do you adorn it? Well it says it right there that the servants are to work to please their masters to do a good job. If you're a bum, doesn't doesn't look well. I want you to, I want these people. I want you to tell them if they don't work, they don't eat. 
They go hungry. Hunger is a good motivator for work. Mm -hmm. See? But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. What's he saying there? Well, uh, unlike the busybodies, don't you grow weary in doing good. See, the danger is that you become soured on helping people, right? If everybody's always mooching from you, after a while you get to the point where you don't want to help people because you think they're just mooching. And what Paul is saying, don't allow these abusers to keep you from ministering to other people and becoming sour and not helping. Don't, don't let them destroy you. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. If they don't listen to what I've said here, stay away from them. Now if you stay away from them, that does a lot for the mooching problem, doesn't it? Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. What does it mean? Don't treat him as an enemy, but call him back to repentance. The goal of church discipline is not punishment, but it's restoration. To restore. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Just his benediction. It's interesting because he says, here's the signature, just so you know it's really me this time. Because evidently back in 2-1, somebody gave a letter saying, oh, this Paul wrote this, and it really wasn't Paul at all. He said, nope, this is me. This is the letter I wrote. I think Paul really, I mean, I, I maybe he did. But like some of the things that he wrote, do you really think he really understood the fullness of everything that he wrote? Possibly not. Yeah. Possibly not. I mean, because it's, it may be, it may seem easier for us to discern because we have the, we compare yeah. the rest of the epistles. But some of the things that he wrote are so, when you go so deep into them, thinking, did he really, did he personally know Yeah, I, and I think the answer to that is, is like what we did in, if you remember, New Testament survey, we said that, um, you know, Paul did not write up, walk, wake up one day and said, uh, I'm going to write a book of the Bible. See, who do I write to? Thessalonians, I'll write to them. He, he didn't. He had no idea that this letter would be read by us 1900 years. He had no concept that we would be reading this letter today. This was a letter to a church dealing with a problem, but God the Holy Spirit so overshadowed over, um, that process that what came out was Scripture. And so there's a depth to it that Paul probably didn't even understand when he wrote it. Alright, well let's uh, close in prayer and we'll take a short break and get into Timothy. Father, thanks for this day and for what we've been able to study in Thessalonians. I pray that it change our hearts and our lives and our conduct. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.